This is Kona Bible Church. Thanks for listening. We pray that you will experience God's blessing as you consider Pastor Brian's latest message from his series, Wrestling with God, from the book of Genesis. I'm going to jump into this. Uh, we're, we're in Genesis chapter 50. Did you ever think we'd make it? It's the payoff, folks. When you get to chapter 50, this is the payoff. Everything has been getting kind of set uh, to come into this passage here today. And so uh, here's kind of the plan. We're going to um, you know, read through and, and give you some observations on chapter 50, hopefully uh, to encourage you in your spiritual journey. Uh, and then I'm gone for three Sundays. And so as Rebecca said, isn't that nice of me to go, to go on the hike with her? She said something about people might think I'm crazy. I was one of them. You're hiking all the way to the bottom of the Great Game? Good luck. Uh, I am out on that. Uh, if there's engines or motors that would help me get there, I'm in. My own two feet, I'm out. Uh, no, so uh, fortunately my nephew is going with her, so that'll be good. But uh, here's what I was thinking. I don't know why this is so strange, but, you know, like if you're thinking of, uh, you know, I try to give you like imagery to remind you to pray. I got a great one for you. It's really weird. When you are zipping anything, right, that's bringing things together. There's a canyon, right? Usually there's a, there's a gap in between. Pray for my wife. <laughs> it's a strange one to do, but... I'm telling you, the strange ones are the ones that are going to work. Uh, and so when you're zipping something up, oh, yeah, that's right, Rebecca. I should pray for Rebecca. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, we're here in this series, and the whole series has been wrestling with God. Will you trust his word? And we have really, I hopefully, given you some freedom to be able to hear the proclamation uh, that God is giving and the freedom to wrestle with that. I think in, in, in uh, faith circles, too often, if it says it, you got to do it, and you can't, you know, wrestle with it, and I, that, that's not life. Um, oftentimes, what we have to do is we have to wrestle with some of these proclamations of truth and come to, to test it a little bit and see if it actually uh, is, is going to be the path that leads to life. And so hopefully, as we've navigated through this, there are areas maybe in your own life where, you've, where you are wrestling through some things. And hopefully you're beginning to kind of take those steps of, of uh, freeing yourself to do the wrestling and then also going through the process and, and coming out on the other end saying, yes, Father, I do trust you. It's a difficult thing to do, um, but that's where we are at. So here we are, Genesis chapter 50, last chapter in Genesis. Uh, let's read this together. Then Joseph hugged his father's face. He just died. He just died in chapter 49, for those of you who weren't with us. <laughs> Jacob's dead. Uh, and so he hugged his father's face. He wept over him and kissed him. Joseph instructs the physicians in his service to embalm his father. If he wasn't dead, it'd be a little weird to embalm him. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Remember, Jacob's name got changed from Jacob to Israel, uh, which means he wrestles with God or God contends with man. They took 40 days, for that is the full time needed for embalming. The Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. This is a guy that just showed up as a 130-year-old 17 years ago into Egypt. And you think about the impact that his son Joseph had on the nation of, of Egypt. 
and then actually all the neighboring nations as well. And here you have some Egyptians that uh, recognize, wait a minute, Joseph comes from this guy, Jacob. This guy is, is worthy of honor. Uh, and yet, remember what Jacob does. He's, he, he doesn't long for recognition within Egypt to have some monument built for him. No, what does he do? He, he says, take me back to the land where I have uh, land because I know that the promise of God is going to be fulfilled. And so I want to be in the land that God has promised about. That's what, he, what we're going to see. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's royal court, If I have found favor in your sight, please say to Pharaoh, My father made me swear an oath. He said, I am about to die. Bury me in my tomb that I dug for myself there in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father just as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials went with him, the senior courtiers of his household and all the senior officials of the land of Egypt, all Joseph's household, his brothers and his father's household. But they left their little children and their flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him, so it was a very large entourage. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad on the other side of the Jordan, they mourned there with very great and bitter sorrow. There Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived in the land saw them mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a very sad occasion for the Egyptians. That is why its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So the sons of Jacob did for him just as he had instructed them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre. This is the field Abraham purchased as a burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt along with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge and wants to repay us in full for all the harm we did to him? So they, went to, they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father gave these instructions before he died. Tell Joseph this, Please forgive the sin of your brothers and the wrong they did when they treated you so badly. Now please forgive the sin of the servants of, of the God of your father. When this message was reported to him, Joseph wept. Then his brothers also came and threw themselves down before him. They said, Here we are. We are your slaves. But Joseph answered them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see this day. So now don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little children. Then he consoled them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph lived in Egypt along with his father's family. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the descendants of Ephraim to the third generation. He also saw the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh. They were given special inheritance rights by Joseph. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and lead you up from this land to the land he swore on oath to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to you. 
Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. All right. Uh, Calvin, you can jump all the way ahead to where it says true forgiveness. Look at you. You're on fire, this kid. Must be something about the name Calvin. Today, we are going to uh, kind of just examine this concept of true forgiveness. What's interesting in this passage is that we, the audience, and let's remember that we are included in the audience. Genesis is not just some random collection of stories that kind of walk you through the story of a couple uh, of one family's life. No, they're very divinely inspired and selected passages to teach something to two communities of faith. One, that of Israel, which is going to be coming into, uh, you know, more prominence here in Exodus. Uh, Jacob, his name is turned into Israel, and they're still a small family. They're not this nation yet, but they will go down into Egypt, and, and they will become a big nation, and God will deliver them out. And as they're being delivered out, Moses, in all likelihood, writes this account in Genesis to communicate something to this this new nation, Israel. In fact, you can look at Genesis in, in many respects as a book of illustrations for the law. And when you think about the law of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you can then go back and at various times when you see or hear a law, it should and ought to provoke you to consider stories that happened in Genesis uh, as illustrations uh, to consider. And so we also are invited as one of the communities of faith called the church to be able to consider these uh, inspired uh, stories for our benefit. So in, in light of that, then what we need to do, there's, this is an interesting passage because we can put ourselves in both the protagonist and antagonist's shoes or sandals, if you prefer. I don't know if they had shoes back then. So sandals. Think about that for a moment. We can, we can actually get into the brother's sandals and really kind of reflect on, well, what does it like, what is it like to be offered forgiveness, true forgiveness? And there's a whole uh, kind of journey that you can take uh, wrestling through those moments when you, have, when you have, are known to have done something to cause other people uh, great calamity and great corruption. Because of the own choices you have made, you have impacted people so negatively uh, that you realize that you were the problem. Uh, that's the brothers. And we can get into that and then be able to, to walk through and wrestle through with, wait a minute, there's true forgiveness available for me from the Father. Now think, of, think about that for a moment. The Father is the Father of all. So when you... Uh, do something corrupt to another one of his children, well, he's not going to be happy about it. Uh, think of your own experience as, as either a sibling or a child, or if you're the only child, well, I'm sorry for you. Uh, but perhaps you can at least identify with the idea of a sibling um, and think of a parent who sees the one sibling harm the other. Well, no, that, that, that's no good at all because the parent's uh, generally speaking, love each of them, or ought to, theoretically, love them equally. And so if one is doing harm to the other, oh, no, that's not acceptable. 
right? There's this step in. The father is going to have concern for the one who is getting hurt. Well, put yourself in those shoes because here now, all of a sudden, these children, the ones who have done the wrong, are being offered true forgiveness from the father, right? Because you have not just offended the, the sibling, you have offended the parent as well. Uh, and so we, as children of faith, have not only offended uh, uh, people, other humans, we have offended the father of all when we strike out and hurt others. And so we do need that, that true forgiveness that comes from the father. But we also can experience true for forgiveness uh, from one another. And so there's actually this opportunity to kind of see and experience, well, how do we get true forgiveness, not only from the Father, but one another? Then we can also put ourselves in the sandals of Joseph, right? Because in many respects, we are the ones who are going to have received the corruption from other people. We are going to have, have been hurt. Uh, well, not only are we the perpetrators of corruption, we are also the receivers of corruption, and so we get this opportunity to look at Joseph and go, what are you doing? You are truly forgiving your brothers? That's crazy. I wouldn't do it. Right? And so we get to walk through Joseph's shoes as well. Now, when we also think about the layered context of who Joseph is, he's the type of Christ. Oh, well, then we begin to look at the life of Jesus and go, oh, my goodness, Everything that Joseph is doing here is modeling exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. So we have an awful lot of ways that we can kind of navigate through this passage. And I would invite you to not just use the 20 minutes, 30 minutes, <laughs> that I'll be unpacking this. But go back into it and spend some time uh, pausing, questioning, and wondering, why is this passage here for me? All right? True forgiveness. Uh, the first thing that I think of uh, when I think of true forgiveness is, is, what, is what I think is happening in Genesis in, its in Genesis in its entirety. God is coming down and he is saying, look, there is a reality that exists. And what I want you to do is I want to form your worldview for you so that as you encounter, as you go into the chaos, that you are going to have a, an understanding of the chaos that is true. Now, there are many competing uh, voices that are trying to get us to, to believe al alternate worldviews. But those alternate worldviews are always going to result in turbulence because they are not an accurate reflection of truth or of reality. And so God is coming down and he's going, no, another reason why I'm giving you this book of Genesis is so that you can be prepared, you can be equipped to go into the chaos to bring order and purpose to that chaos. And unfortunately, you've, you've uncorrupted that chaos, so you've made the job even harder for yourselves. But with that, I still want to give you the tools to be able to go into the corrupted chaos, bring order, purpose, and life. That's your calling. That is the calling of every human being to be able to go in and do that. And we've looked at, at so many different ways. Well, the first thing that I would suggest that God is trying to, to, get, to get you to be equipped with is the expectation that you will encounter or be touched by corruption. Now, 
when you think of, of the inevitability of it, it just think about, think about the enemies that you have. You have a liar that is constantly lying to you, never takes a break, constantly lying. And if you, if you somehow repel one lie, well, he's, he's devious enough to try to get you with another lie. Because that's who he is. He's the father of lies. So he's constantly trying to get you to uh, move away from the things that bring life and actually have you experience death. And he's going to do it by appealing to all all different kinds of ways uh, to get you. He's going to be lying constantly to you. Uh, Think also then, if 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 everybody in the world is subject to this liar... And, and not everybody is repelling the lies. Well, then all of a sudden you have humanity that is operating according to a different worldview. That's called the world. And, and the world is seeking to conform you to its ideas. And those ideas also do not lead to life. And then finally, you, this is the worst one. Inside you, you have your own flesh that's like, oh, I like that lie. That's a good one. Oh, I like that. Oh, and the way the world is operating? Oh, I like that too. So you have this like triumvirate of enemies that are really seeking to destroy you and and not allow you to experience life to get you to experience or be touched by corruption. Now, what chance do you have? you, You have to have. You have to be equipped in your life to wake up each day and go, somehow, some way, because I live in this world with these enemies, I'm going to be touched by corruption. If you do not believe that, you are not equipped or prepared for when the corruption hits. You will be left wondering, what just happened to me that somebody would lie to me? And really, we don't even have to get outside this building. Just look around. You don't have to go out and into, into the world and, and have people who are not followers of faith. You can be within the church and be touched by corruption within the church. And if you are not prepared to encounter that touch of corruption, oh, woe is you. You will not be prepared. And, and what is, that's going to shake your foundations. If, for example, a natural disaster happens and you are caught off guard by that, Woe are you because you do not have the foundations to be equipped to be able to handle when corruption happens. It happens in so many different ways. Think of health situations, right? If you are not equipped to get a bad report from the doctor, I don't know what to tell you because we will all be touched. You know, we're all paying taxes and we're all going to die. So if you are not prepared to be touched by corruption... You are not prepared for life. So one of the first things that you see, the power of this this promise that, that, that Joseph believes, is you see this guy from a young age, he knows that he, he's going to be touched by corruption. And I don't think it even caught him off guard that his brothers respond. Now, probably off guard with the extent to which they went. But I don't think it would catch anybody off guard to think that there's favoritism. Right? If, if you're not prepared to deal with favoritism in this world, you're not prepared. You don't understand corruption. Think about how favoritism works. I hope that you have never experienced this yourself. But in a room this size, I would think there's many people in here who have experienced the corruption of a parent loving 
their sibling more than they loved you. Or vice versa. And so Joseph, he's not obtuse. What we see from him all throughout this, this, this Genesis section is that he is incredibly wise. And so I think he recognizes he doesn't affirm his father's favoritism, but I think he's well aware that if if my father favors me, that I'm the golden child, that's not going to be good for my uh, brother's psyches. And, and here's why. Because when we reach for corruption, when we have been affected by corruption, the root cause is that somehow there's been this essence of doubts, fears, and insecurities that we hold onto. And so when we experience these types of corruptions, it's the doubts, the fears, and the insecurities that kind of rise to the surface. And, and put yourself in one of the brother's shoes, right? Wait a minute. If you have doubts, fears, and insecurities about your father's love for you, what do you think? And then you see him loving your other brother? What, how do you think that's going to play out? If you don't have a confidence in the promise that there is a God who is able to raise the dead back to life and somehow take your father's favoritism, that, that corrupt behavior, and somehow bring it back to life, and you allow your doubts, fears, and insecurities to prevail, corruption is going to happen. And I don't think it, it, it surprised Joseph in the least that his brothers responded unfavorably to that favoritism. The extent to which it did? Oh, maybe the extent. Uh, you know, wanting to kill him or, or be sold into slavery, that, that's, that's extreme. But one of the things that you have to be equipped with, and I think he was equipped to do this, was to expect corruption. The reason we, we believe that is as you read through the story, he never allows being touched by corruption to divert him off course. It's the beauty of who Joseph is. And if we are projecting then Joseph to be Jesus, oh, it never diverts Jesus off course either. He expects to be touched by corruption. And, and what does he do? He, the first thing he doesn't, he goes, well, these poor fools, I, I can't trust them. No, what does he do? He, I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to touch me with their corruption. And that's exactly what happens. Peter denies him three times. Uh, Judas betrays him, right? None of these things, I think, surprise Jesus at all. And just as the same, none of these things surprise Joseph. It, it, they were equipped with the expectation that they were going to experience corruption. How about you? Are you prepared when you go into work that you're going to be touched by corruption? Are you prepared when you take your marriage vows that you will be touched by corruption. Wouldn't that be interesting marriage vows? I choose you, honey, for you to touch me with your corruption for the rest of my life until I die. Ah, that's some bold proclamation, but actually true. Are you prepared when you walk through those doors that the men, women, and children in this congregation are going to touch you with their corruption, and that you will touch them back with your own corruption. Folks, you better be prepared. You better be equipped. Because when it happens, if you are not equipped, your foundation will not even be there. You'll be left with a world spinning out of control and going, 
what just happened? Left questioning everything, including God himself, which we all do. Joseph was not. He expected corruption and he stayed the course, just like Jesus. And we have been called to do that. Well, the other thing is, just because we expect it doesn't mean we don't call a spade a spade. Right? That's part of the problem these days is that we have to get to the point where we say, you know what? That was corrupt behavior. When you, when you spoke to me with that, with that tone or that, that way that you did with that kind of language, it doesn't matter the content. It was a corrupt way to speak. And that's what James talks about, right? The power of the tongue. That if you can somehow control that thing, whoo, then you can control your whole body. Well, that kind of changes the dynamics there a little bit. But you have to be able to recognize that when it happens, it is corrupt. You can't just go around and go, I forgive you, it's okay. No, you have to be able to step up. That's exactly what Joseph does here in this passage. What you intended to harm me, right, that was corrupt. And that's a beautiful thing for him to be able to say that. You see this right through his life, that he is establishing boundaries in his relationships with people of going, look, when you act corrupt, I'm going to call it corrupt. And when I act corrupt, I hope that you call it corrupt as well. Because only then can we actually get to the point that Paul says we are all sinners and that we are all in need of salvation and deliverance. But if you can't get to the point that you can even call or question your own behavior as corrupt, where does that leave us? It, it doesn't leave us in a position of reconciliation. It leaves us in a position of, I can forgive you, but I can't actually be in relationship with you. And you think about God, and, and, and what does he say? Just, just, just all, that's all you have to do. Look, come to me and just say, Lord, save me. It's as simple as it takes to be in relationship with, with the creator of the universe uh, for how we have offended him and, and brought corruption so much in this world. We ourselves individually have done that, and yet he says, just tell me that you're wrong, and I will come, and I will truly forgive you. Well, another part of the whole equation here is that true forgiveness, uh, it, it gives God the prerogative to judge. Ooh! This is a major theme in Genesis. Now, we have camped out on two themes, right? The power of the promise and how that transforms us. And the second one is this whole idea of being touched by corruption. But when we go back and we review Genesis, a third one definitely comes up. And we think about the flood and we think about Sodom and Gomorrah and this opportunity where God is coming down and saying, I have the prerogative to judge not you, because you will mess it up entirely. If I were somehow to give you the prerogative to judge, it would end in disaster every time. And yet what we do is we go, ah, nah, the flood, that doesn't seem like a loving God. Nah, I, I, nah, I can't give you that. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that seems pretty rude to those two cities. I, you don't seem trustworthy to judge so here's what I'm going to do for you. God, God, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I do, okay? I'm going to take the prerogative to judge away from you. How's that sound? And we do it all the time. 
We just rip it out of his hands and we say, no, 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 I'm more trustworthy to judge than you are. And what we do with our judging, uh, when it comes to somebody who has uh, done some corruption against us, perpetrated corruption against us, we go, <laughs> okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to keep you bound in your chains and not forgive you because you haven't shown any willingness to recognize that you have hurt me. No, I'm going to keep you bound. I'm going, to, I'm going to play all kinds of mental and psychological games with you so that I can somehow gain the upper hand and use my prerogative to judge you in order to do what? To control you. Because that's what we do as human beings. Because of our fears, our doubts, and our insecurities. Because we don't believe the promise that there is a God who's able to raise the dead back to life. Even the people who have perpetrated corruption against us. So we take the prerogative to judge from him. And we totally miss the point in, in the flood story that God will provide what? A deliverer. For anybody who wants him. How long did it take Noah to build that ark? Yeah, long time. Long time for the culture to be able to be like, hey, you, what you doing over there? I'm building an ark because God's going to flood the world. No, they didn't choose at all. He offered deliverance. That's who God is. Because God is trustworthy as the judge. Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, watch that story. Go back and read. What does he do? He provides a way out because that's who God is. He's not, he doesn't take joy in going, ah, I'm going to smite these people. Although smite's a good word, and you would want to do it occasionally just to kind of keep it alive, right? I mean, if you don't do it, no. No, what does he, he doesn't want to do any of that. He wants you to come and say, Lord, I need a savior. I need a deliverer. And instantaneously, he will provide a way out for you. Now, who should have the prerogative to judge? Somebody who is going to withhold forgiveness or somebody who is going to rush in with forgiveness and love? Yeah, let's give God back the prerogative to judge. This is God. He's coming down in Genesis and he's saying, look, in order to be equipped to go into this world, you are going to be need, need to be equipped with these things. First, you better expect corruption, that you will be the perpetrator and perpetrated by it. Secondly, don't ever, ever forget to call a spade a spade and recognize when corruption has happened, when you have done it and when it has been done to you, feel free to call it a spade. And finally, or thirdly, you have, give me the prerogative to judge. I'm trustworthy. That's what Joseph does here. Am I in the place of God? It's like one of the most beautiful lines in the entire Bible for a, a, a human being to come back and to recognize, am I in the place of God? No. What, am, what have I been called to do? Well, I've experienced forgiveness, and so I guess I'm supposed to be called to dispense forgiveness. I haven't, I haven't received the judgment of God, so why should I be trying to dispense judgment to everybody? No, if, if anything, I experience grace, not judgment, so I ought to be dispensing grace to others. Joseph does this. He's the, he's the type of Christ. That's what Jesus does. He just constantly comes back and he just... Think of all the people that the woman at the well 
right? Think of all the different, the, the woman caught in, in, in uh, adultery. All the different people. Peter himself, they come, he comes back, he just continues to dispense grace after grace after grace. Because that's, he's the perfect, yes, amen. He's the perfect representation of who God is. So he does it. Next thing that he does is when you, when you give God the prerogative to judge, what you are then doing is you're laying down your rights. Woo! Well, let's see. Yeah, you're all Americans. Um, I don't know what to tell you about that, okay? Because you have had a liar that has been speaking into your life, into your head, for as long as you have been born. Uh, maybe you were born outside of America, Carol? Oh, you were born in America. Oh, Noriko, yes, sorry. Not everyone, but almost everyone. Ah, yes, thank you, thank you. But what we have had is we've had a whole culture tell us that we have rights. Well, while there is some truth and we can wrestle through that and navigate some troubled waters, the reality is that the gospel invites us to lay down our rights. Not to, with, not to hold them up and be like, ah, that's my right. No, it's that horrible S word in scripture that everybody, including Christians, gets bent out of shape on. But it's repeated over and over and over again that we must submit, not just to the Father, but that we ought to submit to one another. That what, what does it take to submit to one another? It means that you have to lay down your rights. And so when you give God the prerogative to judge, what you are doing is you are laying the, the judgment, the rightful judgment, taking all your wounds that have been perpetrated against you by their corruption and going, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to trust that you handle my wounds in a way that brings justice to the situation. That is very, very hard to do. And that is what we have been called as followers of Christ, to be able to take essentially ourselves. This is what Paul says. He says, you are to take yourself where every day? To the cross. Every day, you are supposed to take yourself to the cross. And you are supposed to once again go, okay, as difficult as this is, I'm going to take my flesh, the, one, the will that wants, a, wants something different than yours, and I allow it to be nailed to the cross in order that you might have your rightful place in my life and that other people also will have their rightful place in my life as well. It's incredibly challenging and difficult. I, this is why Jesus says, before you follow me, you might want to consider counting the cost because it is going to cost you everything. You have to lay down your rights in order to follow him. And I wonder if we as an American church are even equipped with any of this to be able to, to be the perpetrators of corruption and have it perpetrated to us and be equipped somehow to walk through that in a way that is uh, according to reality. 
Folks, not only do, do we need to hear this, our next generation needs to hear this. My boy needs to know that when he goes to school, and, and these kids over here, whether it's Christian school or public school or homeschool, you will be touched by corruption. Are you equipped to hear that? Are you equipping your spouse? Are you equipping your children? Are you equipping your friends, your family, your neighbors with the truth of the word of God? This is what Genesis is here to do. And it is inviting us to lay down our rights uh, in order to make that happen. The final thing that I think we see in, the, in order to be able to not only receive true forgiveness, but to dispense true forgiveness, well, you've got to expect new life, folks. I mean, there's just no alternative uh, apart from it. If you do not have an expectation, let's try it maybe together. That there's a God who is able to raise the dead back to life. Can we, I, that, that did not sound like together. That sounded like me solo. <laughs> Have I not repeated it enough in the last year and a half? If you do not expect that there is a God who is able to raise the dead back to life, you are not equipped to be able to offer true forgiveness. You see, that's the basis of it all. Of the whole thing. It's what gives you the power to be able to release all the corruption that has been perpetrated toward you. Because you have confidence that there is a God who can raise not just the perpetrator that perpetrated toward you, but you yourself, the perpetrator, back to life. There is that it has to be. If you are not if you are not prepared. To have that expectation or equipped with that expectation, you're never going to be able to really not only receive true forgiveness, but then obviously be able to dispense it. This is Genesis. Do you think it's important? Yeah. The gospel is all over Genesis. It is foundational for a life of faith, for the community of faith called the church. And as we kind of take a step back and begin to think about some of the bigger themes that happened here in Genesis, what I think we realize is, oh my goodness, Joseph is, gave us this representation of who Jesus is going to be even more perfectly. And what he has done for me is he has offered all these things and he lived it out, every one of these things, and now he's beckoning me to, to follow him. And I think we, we get that language confused sometimes because we say that we are followers of Christ, but I'm not so sure if we are doers of Christ. So will you join me in the coming days and weeks and months and years to, to become a follower of Christ, that you will not just hear what he has to say that leads to life, but that you will do what he says that leads to life. In order to do that, my opportunity for you to consider this morning is for you to create a worldview or to allow the Lord to create this worldview for you that recognizes and expects corruption, recognizes it and calls it out for what it is, gives God the prerogative to judge, which means you are laying down rights and never lose hope in a God who's able to raise the dead back to life. Father, This is very, very difficult. 
If I walked in Joseph's shoes, I'm not sure I would be able to do what he did. But here's what I'm convinced of. I am convinced that you will not allow death or corruption to have the final say in my life. So I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief to continue to live the reality that you are indeed raising us back to life, raising me back to life in order that I can receive the forgiveness and give it to those who are in desperate need of it. Father, um, will you pour out your spirit on us to do and be faithful to what you promised to do with us? We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.